the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you'll keep your Bibles open to Proverbs chapter 20, we want to continue what we started a few weeks ago. Uh, you remember that we opened this up originally, but we only got about 10 verses in. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to finish off the entire chapter this week. But it is uh, a chapter devoted to the concept of the spiritual art of making fine distinctions. One of the things that Solomon wants to do for his son is help him to become a discerning individual. Someone who can divide, rightly divide things, even as we're told in the New Testament, to rightly divide the word of truth. And this is necessary for us because often we're lazy thinkers, spiritually as well as naturally. And in the process, we can fall into one of two areas very, very easily. Here you've got a picture of wheat and tares, and you can see that they're, they're pretty similar. They're difficult to discern the difference between the two. But nevertheless, we're called to make a, a distinction between the two. The first of the two dangers is to become simplistic. And when you're a simplistic thinker, everything is black and white. Everything is, is either or. It's this or it's that, and there's nothing else. And that's a, a nice way of being able to categorize the whole world. Unfortunately, it's not realistic. Because not everything functions in exact blacks and whites. And this chapter is laid out as almost like, a, like an obstacle course to say, I'm going to give you a bunch of concepts, and I want you to think through what's an absolute and what isn't. How does that work and how doesn't it work and, and go through that? The other danger is that of being abstruse, where there's no blacks and whites. Everything is gray. Everything is a shade. And you can, you can therefore, there's no objective truth. There's no true black or white. And in the process, everything get, can get very distorted and very nuanced, even basic truths. The Bible does have clear blacks and whites. But it also has areas of subtlety and nuance and shades. So we want to be careful, as we read here in Isaiah, that it's woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There's a distinction. The two are set contrary to one another. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So there are clear blacks and whites, and then there's places where we've got to understand. So the greater part of wisdom, as Solomon's relating it to his son, is to understand and discern both realities and to see which one fits where. So he gives us this particular chapter. So not everything exists in strict either-or antitheses, although some do. But nor is every concept susceptible to being nuanced and shaded in a both-and way of thinking. So here's this primer, and we worked through the first ten verses last time, and now we want to work through a few more. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Now, this is not an absolute but it sure has a lot of weight to it. Charles Bridges, uh, a commentator from another age, wrote this, Parents should take note of their children's early habits. 
Generally, the discerning eye will see something in the budding of the young tree that will indicate how the mature tree will grow. The child tells us what the man will be. No wise parent will pass over little faults as if it is only a child doing childish things. If a child is deceitful, quarrelsome, obstinate, rebellious, and selfish, how can we but fear for his future as he grows up? And that's true. You see those things in your children. But that's not the whole story. And this is where wisdom comes into play. We must must never forget that while those are true because we're all born in sin and we're going to manifest these things, nevertheless, we serve the God of hope. We serve the God who gives a, a gospel and a spirit that transforms and can begin to root out these tendencies and move us in a different direction. So we don't despair of his grace, even though we reckon with the reality of the verse that's given to us. We don't doubt his faithfulness. We hold on in patient hope. Tears of despondency will be exchanged for tears of joy, says Bridges. People are best known by what they do and not merely by what they profess. That's true. Keep an open eye. But nevertheless, we also serve a God of grace who can change hearts and move us. Verse 12, and this actually moves us to the core. This is, if you will, the defining verse for the entire chapter in helping us understand where he's coming from. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. In sorting this out, I wrote Dan Savage, our resident scientist on the eye, and I asked him the question, how many distinct colors can the human eye discern? He gave me a three-page answer followed by, which I didn't understand, but he's, he's brilliant and I'm, I'm a bit of a stump. Um, so, but anyway, he came down and he said, let me, let me answer it the best I can. Somewhere, depending on who the expert is, between 100,000 and 10 million distinct colors. Now the point is, God has equipped us to make fine discernments. And when we won't, we're denying part of how we've been made in the image of God. We're equipped for this. Not only does the eye see in amazing ways, so the ear. We can hear, typically the human being can hear anywhere between 20 cycles and 20,000 cycles. That's a lot of different sounds in between. And we're meant to be able to distinguish. We're meant to be people who read and understand and interact with truth in a discerning way. And especially all things through the filter of God's word and ultimately the filter of Christ himself, who is the truth through whom we see all things. This is what we're called to. And so Solomon mentions this. He goes back. God's truly given us great gifts of perception, but mere perception, unfiltered or uninformed by God's revelation, can never truly discern the truth. This is why we can have so many competing worldviews around us that even though we can make distinctions, we can't arrive at the ultimate truth apart from the revelation of God. Let me just give you a quick example. It's true, for instance, that Israel's first king, Saul, was robust. He was tall and handsome and capable. But when Samuel is sent to find a successor to Saul, those are not the qualities he's told to look for. 
So we read in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'm discerning deeper, and I want you to discern deeper than those outside things. Everybody likes, um, you know, during the days of, and some of you are so much younger than I am, but when President Kennedy was elected and he had Jacqueline as his first lady, uh, all the stories were about Camelot. Here's this handsome couple. Here's this, this beautiful representation. And shouldn't that then demonstrate how good they'll be? No. It's interesting that if you look at the statistics, people who are over six foot tall, especially executives, earn typically much more money, at least 20% more a year, than people who are under six feet tall. Why? Because people above six feet tall are smarter or better? Well, in my case. Um, no. But because appearance means more to us than it does to reality. And we've got to be careful we don't go there. One of the most fascinating things found in early church history is a description of the Apostle Paul. That he was not much above five feet tall and that he was bald and that he had bowed legs and a very large nose. I don't picture the Apostle Paul like that. I want him to come on the scene striking. Look at all the pictures of Jesus, the supposed pictures of Jesus. How we make him this handsome, Aryan guy when he was a Middle Eastern man of the first century and probably didn't have those striking features that all of our artists like to import. But we assign value to those things when they have no intrinsic value themselves. It's why later in Ecclesiastes we're told that beauty is, is vain. Not that it isn't pleasant, but in and of itself, it holds no value. And we have to be careful where we go. So Jesus himself said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't discern merely from the externals. I've got something else that informs how I understand truth and how I understand the things around me. It's important for us as believers to walk in this kind of wisdom. Verse 13, love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Now again, this isn't an absolute in this way. Yes, we're not to be lazy. But also the one without proper rest can't be properly productive either. There's got to be a proper balance. And he's calling us, discern here. It's said that Alfred Fuller, the man who founded the Fuller Brush Company. Now, again, I'm dating myself. There are so many here who wouldn't have the slightest idea who, what a Fuller Brush man was if I had to I'd display it for you. Leave it, leave it to this. There was a guy who started a company. It was called the Fuller Brush Company, and his salesmen went door to door, household to household, and they sold the Fuller Brush wares, which went on to be more than brushes. There were lots of other things that they sold. He would only give his salespeople a 15-minute uh, lunch break because he said, if I give you more than 15 minutes, once the food sets in, you'll get sluggish and you won't be able to sell anymore. And he drove his people to distraction. His, his salesman didn't last very long because he burned them out pretty quickly. And so it's true. Uh, if you're a lover of sleep in the sense that this captivates you, 
it's not surprising if you're not very productive and have nothing to show for it. Isn't this true spiritually? If you're unwilling to dig in God's word, if you're unwilling to do the study, don't be surprised if your spiritual life is impoverished. Can't grow. But at the same time, you also need rest. And so the Savior, even when he was weary, he rested by the well of Samaria and he slept in the boat after preaching the, had made the disciples leave the crowds for, the, for rest's sake. He knew full well that he couldn't endure the cross if he worked himself to death first. And he set limits. He understood that there has to be wisdom in this. Now here we have a good black and white. Here's an either or. Here's one where he wants us to catch the real contrast. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. How many of us have done that, buying a used car? Well, don't you see the rust? Don't you see, you know, it's going to need this, it's going to need that. Bad, bad, I'm going to get that, that price down. And in fact, that's not dealing honestly. In fact, it's trying to take advantage of the other person. Apart from the grace of God working in us, we will all barter and bargain to our own good above the other party in every transaction. And this tendency has to be fought. It's a sinful one. That's not just good business sense. It's willful deception. And we're to rise above that. That's a, there's a black and white for us. In verse 15, we get another black and white. There is gold and abundance of costly stones. But the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. How we need to examine what is most precious to us and why. And here, knowing truth ranks above wealth, even an abundance of wealth. One of my favorite of the old Puritan writers is John Flavel. Uh, in his wonderful, one of his wonderful books, series on the glories of Christ, he has this phrase which is always i just love this it is the most sweet and comfortable knowledge to be studying jesus christ what is it but to be digging among all the veins and springs of comfort and the deeper you dig the more do these springs flow upon you how are hearts ravished with the discoveries of christ in the gospel what ecstasies meltings transports do gracious souls meet there Doubtless, Philip's ecstasy, we have found Jesus, was far beyond that of Archimedes. A believer could sit from morning to night to hear the discourses of Christ. His mouth is most sweet. Let us compare this knowledge with all other knowledge, and thereby the excellency of it will farther appear. All other knowledge is natural, but this is wholly supernatural. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The wisest heathens could never make a discovery of Christ by their deepest searches into nature. The most eagle-eyed philosophers were but children in knowledge compared with the most illiterate Christians. What it is to know Christ. To have had the eyes opened to who he is. And how that transcends everything in this life because everything in this life will perish. It doesn't mean that we don't accumulate knowledge, but we, we understand the difference here. 
And, and just think about it. If you're a Christian here today, you know God because Christ has opened your eyes. He's revealed Him to you. There's no other way you could know Him. And how precious is that? Do you realize how supernatural it is that you're a Christian? That you know God, that you know the gospel of grace. These aren't natural things. They can't just be absorbed by the mind. This is the working of the Holy Spirit, tearing the scales off the eyes, overcoming the obstinacy and darkness in the heart, and bringing truth to bear in your soul that will last for eternity. It's a marvel that you're a Christian. You're a walking miracle. And if you don't know Christ today, oh, plead that He'll open your eyes. Because He doesn't refuse those who come. Plead that the Spirit will make Him real to you and make you to know the truth of His Word so that you might have forgiveness of sin and the eternal life that that makes us so different from all the rest and the promise of, of that eternal future. Verse 16. Take a man's garment when he's put up security for a stranger. The idea is being collateral for somebody else's loan. And hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. This is interesting. This can't be a black and white because we're going to read the exact opposite in another few chapters. Solomon's going to give the exact opposite advice. But the truth is, and this is where discernment needs to come into play for us as believers, some people need to be allowed to crash and burn in their sin and bear the consequences of their poor decisions. Sometimes we're unwilling to let that happen. And sometimes we need to be clear that that's exactly what needs to happen. And yet, in Proverbs 22, 26, it'll say, Be not one of those who gives pledges or who puts up security for debts. Just the opposite of this. You see, it, it isn't an absolute in every case. And when we, as we mentioned last time, when we absolutize verses, where the Bible speaks more fully in other places, we will make these idols, we will make these strong statements about things that really don't apply in every situation, and we make a hash of the Bible entirely. The decision has to be based on a better understanding of what will meet the true needs of the individual in question at the time. And that's going to take some prayer, it's going to take some consideration. This is why the Bible doesn't give us a list of rules to live by, but instead calls us to follow the Spirit of Christ and to walk in love. What is ultimately best for this individual before God, not what is most comfortable right now? Or what is the rule? It's very difficult. Verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Here is a good black and white. Sin never yields good. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't intervene and bring about good out of the foulest thing. But it's to never use what God can do with sin as an excuse for sin. It won't work. It's contrary to how God functions in His universe. Even if the individual themselves is rescued out of grace, remember that Jesus was not rescued and paid the price for that sin even if in the immediate sense you do not. Ever lie to put yourself in a better position 
someday that will turn to gravel in your mouth. It will come back. Because Christ had to pay for all sin. And we cannot sin carelessly in that way. Verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance. Make war, wage war. This is always a fun one within the the biblical camp among Christians of different convictions and what they believe may be callings. There are those who seem to make no plans for the future, nor anything else, under the rubric, God will take care of me. And then there are those who, in making their plans, put all their faith in their plans and their provision, while ignoring that God does take care of his own. A balance has to be met. A true balance. Lack of planning is not faith. And much planning is not a guarantee. Those two things can't be weighed in that way. And Solomon's saying, think through this. Don't just plunge into these things. I absolutize either one of those positions and you're going to end up a mess. It's not a proper way to live. He calls us to something entirely different. Verse 19. Here's a good black and white. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. My wife and I were talking to someone the other day, and she said in the middle of the conversation, now I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say, because I don't repeat gossip, so I won't say it a second time. (laughs) That's excellent. Revealed the concept, didn't it? Those who, who make, those who are gossips, who like to spend their times bandying about the lives and actions and circumstances of others to no positive good are to be avoided. Just avoid them. The text doesn't seem to care about who it is we might be slandering or gossiping about or whether or not the stuff is true or whether or not the person is saved or unsaved. The principle is about how we talk about other people. And to avoid those who make it their habit to be digging into other people's lives and making judgments and not dealing with truth. A simple babbler, the Hebrew term that's used here, is one that has no discretion in their speech. They just blab out stuff irrespective of who it hurts or why. You want to see this, go online, read any article that you might find in any magazine or any online forum at all, and then read the comments section. If you want a perfect display of total depravity, it's all found there, where they will backstab, slander, slash, curse, mollify, do everything you can to anybody who's there. It's always good to do it at a distance, isn't it? We can just tear them apart. We can always speak ill of people we don't know, we've never met. Boy, what a caution here. What a caution within the, within the church. And yet, let's be careful too. There are times when for the good of someone, certain things, even said in private, must be revealed to those, and I'll qualify this, only those who can help, who can minister. It's a difficult, difficult balance to strike, but a necessary one. You get a good example of this in the New Testament with Paul when he was imprisoned on his final journey to Jerusalem. 
And his nephew overhears uh, an account that there are some people that have bound themselves with a curse that, that they won't eat again until Paul dies. I wonder if they actually kept that promise, that vow. It's kind of, it fits in with another verse we're about to look at. If, if so, they're still, they're still uh, hungry. Um, he goes and he tells Paul, and Paul says, Now go to the centurion, and the centurion says, Thank you for telling me, but tell no one else. There was an important thing that needed to be conveyed there. Out of love and out of concern, not out of bad-mouthing. It's a different, different concept. Verse 20. If one, can, one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Now, if you absolutize this verse, you have just qualified a new unpardonable sin. So you can't absolutize this verse. You can't, you can't bounce it, uh, take it in a way that the rest of Scripture would speak in another way. But does unrepentant sin have its consequences? Absolutely. The lesson's clear. If we do not take advantage of the graces God has provided for us, in this case, in our parents, then we must be prepared to lose the advantage of any of His graces. It's a place where we need some discernment. Some of you that are younger... You need to think about this in your attitudes towards your parents. And to think that, that, that to curse them, to condemn them in your heart and mind is not a healthy place because you're refusing the grace of God. Now, are they perfect? Oh, I can tell you for certain they aren't. Was I a perfect parent? Well, I'm not a good example. Because I was maybe the most imperfect parent. But we think about this as we, as we grow, especially as we grow in Christ and say, wait a minute, God has set up these things in a certain way and they're meant to be graces to me. They're meant to be tokens of his love. And how do I respond to them? And maybe they come imperfectly, but do I dismiss them altogether? And in the process, close my eyes and my ears to what God has provided. Not a healthy place. Verse 21 an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Now again, does this mean that God can, may never providentially bless some in an extraordinary way while they're still young? Of course not. He can certainly do that. But it does mean that if our hearts are set on gain to the degree that we might even hasten to try and borrow from what's not even ours yet, that it reveals a greedy and an impatient disposition which unchecked is going to have a poor end. Now, this is true even in theology. It's true in the New Testament we see it. It's in the church of Thessalonica, for instance, it's what's referred to as a problem of over-realized eschatology, where people try to live or try to imagine that they have all the benefits of heaven now, even though they're not there yet. We were having a discussion in a pastor's meeting just a couple of weeks ago, and this is one of the things that I, I fear that often... In, a, uh, in an emotionally charged way, we can overemphasize the personal relationship one can have with Christ. I say overemphasize it in this way. We are his, and, and if we take the similes of Scripture carefully, I think this is important. We are betrothed to Christ now. We're engaged to him. We're not yet married to him. There are intimacies that we cannot have with Christ yet. And to try and seek them is to go beyond the bounds of where we are. Now, I, I have no doubt that there are many of us who aren't nearly as close, close to Christ as we could be. 
and what joys we could enjoy with him in closeness and fellowship. And yet there's limits in this present life. There's a consummation yet to come. And we want to be careful that we don't condemn other people for not having our, the thought of our experience of intimacy and overreach where it's improper. There's still a, still a place yet for glorification. We aren't there yet. We aren't sinless, except for one or two of you here that have sent me notes and said you are. Verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Here's a black and white. Revenge is never the domain of the believer. Never. Because it acts as though God will not bring justice. It assumes we have to bring it about. Now, does this negate all jurisprudence? Of course not. You look at how Jesus teaches in the New Testament, especially in Matthew chapter 18. If a brother sins against you, you can go and talk to him. And if he won't he'll listen to you, maybe, maybe you need some objective people who can hear both sides of the case. And, uh, and if they then say, no, he really is wrong and he won't listen to them, maybe you need to go further to the church. We, but then there's times when we simply overlook an offense, like in Proverbs 19.11, which we had a few a month or so ago. But revenge is the issue here, and revenge is never countenanced by God. Never. It's a black and white, and we have to see it. Verse 23, I won't deal with here because it's a rehash of what we saw earlier in in the the chapter, a re-emphasis of verse 10, where we saw how important the gospel is, that unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. That in the gospel, God does not simply wave his hand and dismiss sin, but justice must be carried out. Christ must pay the penalty. Absil, you and I are saved on the basis of justice as well as grace. Justice because sin has been paid for. Grace that it's been given to us to freely enjoy. But God never just dismisses sin. Christ must bear the price of it. And so we see how that teased out there. Verse 24. This is so imperative. And if you're not a Christian here today, please hear me as we we talk about this verse for a moment. Because you probably don't understand this, that a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Now, there's a couple different applications of this. But this one I want to, to bring back to your remembrance out of Acts chapter 17 in Paul's discourse on Mars Hill. Where Paul elucidates these truths, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. Why has your life found you in the place where it found you, in the nation in which you dwell, in the era in which you live, with the parents you had or didn't have, with the situations that you encountered in life, whether those be positive or negative, that you might seek God. And if you're not seeking Him, 
how can you understand your way? How can you understand life at all? Because God has a plan. He is moving the whole of the cosmos from point A to point B. And all of us live somewhere along the continuum from when he created to when he will end all things in Christ. You live along that line. You can find out where you are in that line. And the bottom truth to all this is you cannot know what life is for until you understand what God is doing in his universe. Do you realize that he's planning to sum all things up in Christ? And if you're walking on that path so that you're intentionally moving toward that end yourself, good, you're in the right place. If you're not and you're outside of Christ, then when he sums up all things in Christ, you will be subject to judgment and kept out of the kingdom entirely. You can't know the path of your own life unless you understand it in light of the fact that God is moving all of human history in a certain direction. Now, where is your life? Where are your plans? How do they coincide with where God's going? The book of Revelation gives us extraordinary truth to where it's going. Christ will come. He will subdue every earthly kingdom. He will rule and reign in righteousness. And those that are his will rule and reign with him. And those that are not will be cast into outer darkness for eternity. That's where everything is moving. Where are you? Where are you? Because that's where it's going. If we were to take an ocean liner and put all of humanity on that ocean liner and say that ocean liner is moving from point A to point B, it's a transatlantic ocean liner. While you're on that ocean liner, you may say, you know what? I don't want to go to New York, but you're already on the ocean liner. It's left from London and it's on its way here. And so you say, you know what? I'm going to walk in the opposite direction. Oh, you can, but you can only walk to the edge of the boat. Because the boat's moving there. You can go up a deck. You can go down a deck. You can walk in circles if you want. But you can't change the direction of the ocean liner. And all of human history is moving toward that consummation in Christ. And you may think you can walk contrary. You may walk in circles. But the destination will be at the judgment seat of the living God. And when you arrive there, what will you say? There's only one answer. Christ has died for my sin. Let me enter in. No other answer will do. This is the gospel. That a man's steps are are from the Lord. He's got you moving in this direction. And he's given you every opportunity to hear and to respond To bow the knee to him. As a matter of fact, later in this very passage in Acts, Paul says it this way. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He loves so much that he doesn't leave it to your choice. He commands you to repent of your sin. So that's where you'll be found. Either having heard and obeyed the command and come to him and found grace untold and forgiveness without limit and the promise of of eternal glories in him 
or cast out into utter darkness, still in your guilt and your sin. But make no mistake, everything is moving toward that point. Everything, every one of us, we're all on the same ship. Bridges again writes this, here are two basic principles. God's controllable power and sovereignty and man's absolute dependence and helplessness. Here is no infringement on the freedom on the one hand and no excuse for laziness on the other hand. Man often acts as if he's the master of his own situation, as if his steps are his own. Or else having the warped idea of every event being predetermined, he sits still instead of working diligently so the Lord's purposes may be fulfilled. But the humble Christian exercises his freedom in the spirit of dependence on God. Verse 25. It's a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and then to reflect only after making vows. Ever tried to make deals with God when you were in trouble? God, if you'll just get me out of this, I won't play golf on Sunday for a year. And then when the, when the uh, problem lifts, hmm, maybe I spoke a little too rashly. God will understand. After all, it's been three weeks. My clubs are calling to me. Now, am I somehow saying playing golf on Sunday is a sin? No. I'm saying that vowing rashly is the problem. It's always a sin to try and bribe God. Or, or simply in a moment of emotional charge to make rash vows that you later need to recant from. That's why I, I never want to press people in, in one sense in terms of making a commitment to Christ. Because I want you to know truth and wrestle with the reality of it first. And not just make it a knee-jerk emotional response. And then later say, hmm, maybe I jumped too quick. This is not a prohibition against making vows to the Lord either. It's a caution to be careful and thoughtful and deadly serious when you make a vow to God. One thinks easily of Jephthah in, in the book of Judges. How he vowed to sacrifice to the Lord the first thing that came out of his house if God would just give him victory in the battle. God had already told him he planned to give him victory in the battle. But he wants to kind of get some insurance and he thinks his insurance is making this vow. So he makes this vow, and when he comes home, his daughter's the first one who comes out of the door. And it's one of those tragic, warped ways in which Israel had fallen so far from understanding grace and God's ways. Whether you understand that as a, as a parable, or whether you understand it as his daughter was just committed to perpetual virginity, or whether he really sacrificed her, I'll argue in other places. But he was... He had made this vow rashly. And as we saw in another place in Proverbs, what he needed to do was go and unentangle himself, confess and repent of his sin of having made the vow in the first place that he had no right to make. But we don't want to be in that position. None of us do. Verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. And it's true, a wise king does seek to sift out the wheat from the chaff. But he may, as Christ teaches the disciples in Matthew 13, wait until the most opportune time to do it. He might not do it right away. 
It's not a mandate for immediate action or to act rashly. It's a call to understand what certain things need to be looked at. Verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all his innermost parts. Most commentators would agree that that the concept here is that God still allows the conscience to function within the individual. Now, it's true the conscience can be seared. It can be misinformed so that we can think certain things are sin that aren't and think things aren't sin that are. and, And that needs to be clarified. But God has a means of searching out the depths of our souls and the innermost thoughts and motivations. And the spirit of man, this conscience, it needs to be informed by the word of God so that we walk in truth. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 deals with this in great detail. I wish we had time to unpack that, but we don't. I need to run through the end of these and get to some applications. Verse 28, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. This may be one of the single most startling statements regarding the complete antithesis between this present world and all authorities in it and the supremacy of God as he rules his universe that can be had in the whole of Scripture. There is no human agency that has ever ruled in authority over men, politically or however we want to look, whose main principle has been steadfast love and faithfulness. What a government that would be. What a call in our homes as parents. What a call to us as ministers or elders in a church. That this is the model of God's sovereignty. The way that he rules as the king. It's steadfast love and faithfulness that preserve him in his rule. And and by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Wow. What an extraordinary contrast to anything the world has to offer. It's a blessing for God to give godly leadership in His steadfast love. And He may also give wicked leadership out of the same steadfast love when He needs to call His people to repentance and to seek His face once again. And we have to remember that mere pleasantness or external ease is not always a sign of present favor. Unfortunately, the way that that we think about prosperity in our age and in our culture makes us think that if we have God's favor, we'll necessarily be wealthy and comfortable and at ease. That's just not so. What an antithesis. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. There is no comparative value in being young versus being old. Each stage has its own opportunities for service in the kingdom. Unfortunately, we like to absolutize this. And when we do, then the whole, all of the future is about young people and old people are to be disregarded. Or in some cultures, you honor everything that's old and every person that's old and young people are to be relegated to the realm of the frivolous. And the scripture says, no, it's neither one of those. Each has their own richness. Each has their own gifts and graces that they bring to the fore. And we've got to be able to use both. So to say that our future all rests in the youth is to disregard those God's already given. And this is one of the reasons why church history becomes so important in reading those that have gone before us. 
And to disdain youth because they are young is to disregard what God's going to do. And so some of us, as we get older and we get a little more cranky and younger people irritate us more just because they're young and being young, like children are children, and all of a sudden when you hit 70, children aren't supposed to be children. They're supposed to act like adults. Not so. And he calls us to balance, to a right way of handling this. And then verse 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil and strikes make strokes make clean the innermost parts. Does that mean that all pain and suffering is inherently good? No. It's not the statement. We began by referring to Isaiah warning us not to call evil good or good evil. Some acts are evil and we have to call them evil. Even under God's sovereign hand. What it does mean is that every pain and sorrow, if you're a Christian, because of Christ's redemptive work, can be a means to deal with the evil in our own hearts. The evil that often goes undetected until some sharp blow brings it to the surface. And after all, if we're really in the business of wanting to to deal with sin in our lives... It's when we're really crushed, when we're really bruised, when we're really hurt, that sin will start to make its evidence. And that's when we need to deal with it. How God uses such things. Let me give you three simple applications and we'll close here. Application one. Even those things that God made for us, those things made for us by God, can be misused and abused. That's why we've got to be careful with God's Word. This whole passage has been lined out to say, be a careful reader. Look for things that, are, that need balance. Look for things that are black and white. Look for things that are, that, are, that are shaded and be able to distinguish between the two. Because if we don't, we can abuse even the most precious truths in God's Word. And so people who would elevate the love of God above the justice of God can put themselves in a position of robbing God of being just at all. And those who put the justice of God above the love or the grace of God can rule out that he's merciful or gracious at all. And we can't allow those to happen. Well, we've got, we've got action up here. Even those things made for us by our God can be misused and abused. And we have to be so careful with them. And why this discernment that Solomon's trying to build into his son here becomes so important. Secondly, and I speak this especially to myself as I recognized my advanced age creeping up on me. Note how as we grow older, our ability to make fine distinctions audibly, visually, intellectually and even spiritually can wane significantly. This is a warning for us as we grow older in Christ. We can become hard and intractable. We can lose the ability to understand nuance. We can, we can lose that sense of, of clarity where it needs to be and of, of more margin where that needs to be. And this is so true of us as Christians especially spiritually. So it is often that I've heard uh, older saints at times uh, revert back to more simplistic thinking. And we've got to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to fall into that. So as your ears don't distinguish the sounds quite as well, as your eyes don't see as quite as accurately, so the mind isn't quite as sharp in being able to draw those lines and and find out what needs to be done so spiritually. And we can either become ham-fisted, 
striking everything in black and white again or meek to the point of weak and so that we can't make any distinctions at all anymore. And this can creep into anyone. And it's especially necessary for us as believers as we deal with biblical truth so that we hang on to what's solid and and clear and black and white and at the same time leave room for growth and understanding. But then lastly, all things in Scripture must be compared with one another and especially with an eye toward revealing Christ. Everything. 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 If you haven't thought through how this either reveals the character or the the reality of Christ and His saving work, you probably haven't worked through the passage thoroughly enough. It's all got to come back to Him. All things in Scripture have to be compared with one another. Now, let me be clear. The gospel is not broad and indistinct. There is absolute content which must be believed. That's, that's just so clear in Scripture. And yet people also have very faulty ways of describing their experience of having understood the gospel and come to Christ. And I've got to leave room for both of those. There are some genuine believers who have a very poor time articulating the truth of the gospel regarding their own salvation. And we, we help and we grow and we interact with one another on that. The scripture says we must be born again, but not everyone perceives or understands how they got there identically. And we need to, to grow in grace and truth and, and work through that. There's no question. One must believe that the God-man is Jesus Christ, though exactly how he is both may not be scientifically understood with the equal clarity from all those that apprehend the truth. There's no question that one must receive his substitutionary atonement on our behalf by faith. One must believe that he alone is God's means of salvation. These are blacks and whites that can't be ameliorated in any way. One must believe in the Trinity and the triune God, while one may always wonder at the mystery of it. Or as Dr. South said, while one may well lose his soul, if he does not own the doctrine of the Trinity, he may well lose his wits if he tries too hard to understand it. I think that's true. There's two sides to that. One must believe in their sinfulness, which cannot be dealt with by any merit or work that we can do or any system. One must receive God's word as it is. God's word and that it can't be anything else or anything less. One must take up a life of pursuing Christ-likeness and holiness, though all admit that we do so to faltering degrees. One must take up the task of mortifying the deeds of the flesh, though we'll all admit that some battles are common to all and others are peculiar to individuals. Styles of worship will vary, but certain elements are biblically required and we can't do without them. Personal convictions will vary on lots of topics, but, but like foods and alcohol and entertainment and family size and education and music styles, those are all going to be areas that there's... There's some gray among us. One must believe in Christ's bodily resurrection and his literal return, but we might vary widely on the order of events and how some of those prophecies will be fulfilled. And those distinctions are key to the body of Christ, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we grow. We grow in Christ. We grow in ways that that are calling upon us Not to be lazy Christians as thinkers. To be lazy Christian thinkers. 
to think about things seriously and in depth. And not to say, oh, well, that's too hard. I just want to have absolutes, blacks and whites. There are blacks and whites. There's plenty of them in the Bible for you. Or, I don't want any blacks and whites. Isn't everything a matter of opinion? There's plenty of places where there's variance. But there are both of those in God's Word. And the wise Christian is going to search them out. Because in them, we find the revelation of the wisdom of Christ Himself. And that's what we're after. This one who in the absolute judge of all the universe puts all sin in the same place is the same one who offers mercy and grace to all who will believe in him and trust him. What a glorious God we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word again. I thank you for the way that it deals with with matters not lightly or um, foolishly. Or is is so often the case that we want on a surface level. But you bid us to think. Christ is your wisdom personified. And are we not then to enter into that wisdom? And not just live on surface truths. Lord, give us the courage and the wherewithal by your spirit to seek those things out. And above all, to always be on this quest to see Christ in them. To search Him out in all of His fullness. That we might represent You well during this time. But more that we might grow in the image of the Christ who we discover. And that by staring into His likeness, we're conformed to it. Grow us, Father. Don't let us remain stagnant. Keep working. By Your Spirit, keep goading and prodding and and not allowing us to stay at the status quo until at last we put Him on in fullness. Till our lives are characterized by that love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and uprightness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control that is the natural fruit of of your spirit within. Make us like Christ. Today we pray in his name. Amen. Stand as we close with our final hymn, 458. strength.